Um, let me ask you a question before we start and before we, before we begin reading. If you remember, where was Nehemiah prior to, to going to Jerusalem? Where was he at? Does anybody remember? Where was Nehemiah? Shame on you if you don't know. Who, where? He was where? Who? Neverland. Babylon. Nope, he wasn't in Babylon. He, well, he was sort. Where was he at? Go back to chapter 1. Somebody better answer me. He was in Susa, right? Parents, shame on you. He was in the citadel in Susa. He was in the palace. He was with the king. He was a part of the king's court. And so I want to remind you of this just for a second. For Nehemiah to leave the king's court, the comforts of where he was at, to rearrange his life, the call on Nehemiah's, on Nehemiah's heart must have been pretty strong. Don't you think? I mean, here he was. He had all the comforts of the king's palace. But all of a sudden, he felt the call of God. He got a, he got a word that the wall was, had been destroyed. It was a mess. Man, the people were in disarray. God begins to speak to his heart, and he, and he ups. He tells the king what God had been doing in his life, and he says, i got to go. Have you ever had a time in your life where God spoke to you and where you made an adjustment? Have you ever had a time in your life where you, where you felt that God was speaking so clearly and so boldly to you that you were willing to make an adjustment in your life. Have you ever had that time? Or maybe, or, or maybe you felt that there was something that the Lord wanted you to do, but up until today, maybe you've not acted on it. Or maybe you did act out on it. Maybe you did make that transition, but you didn't last too long for whatever the reason. Maybe, maybe you were up under opposition. Maybe it wasn't soon after you started doing what you felt like the Lord wanted to do and what he had birthed inside of you, but it wasn't long after that until all of a sudden you begin to face the opposition. And when the opposition become, began to, to hit you, all of a sudden the tensions begin to rise and instead of pressing through the opposition, it just seemed a whole lot easier to quit. You ever been there? You ever been at that place that you felt like you were doing what the Lord wanted you to do, but, man, it was just hard. And sometimes it's just easy in the midst of opposition just to be able to give up and say, it's just not worth it. You ever been at that place before? Have you ever been at the place where the obstacles seem to be so, so, Strong. I want you to think just for a second with me what we've been talking about. For the past couple of weeks, what have we been talking about? The enemies. The enemies that had been attacking Nehemiah and those that were building, rebuilding the wall. We had talked about, Melvin had talked about the enemies from the outside, and then last week we talked about the enemies that attacked from the inside and how they were taking how they were taking advantage of one another and how the tensions were beginning to rise. And if you remember, Nehemiah called them all together and said, man, listen, you guys have got to stop this foolishness. And he, he brought them in and made them all swear. 
man, listen, you will not do this anymore. This is against the Lord. This is a sin. This is disobedience to God that you guys are taking advantage of those that, are, that don't have. And you guys need to, to not do this any longer. And they all agreed to do that. But what we're going to find out today in chapter 6, listen, the devil, the enemy, never, never. Carl Munn, he never stops. The enemy never sleeps. He just doesn't quit. He just doesn't do that. He never sleeps. He's always active. And he's always scheming against us. As a matter of fact, this is what Jesus had to say about Satan. He said this about the enemy, that he's a liar. He's not just a liar, but he's the father of lies, Jim Cohn. Yeah, it's what Jesus himself had to say about Satan. And he went on to say that not only that, that he's a thief and he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what Jesus himself had to say. And that word Satan means an adversary, an opponent, a rival. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that, that he's like a roaring lion that's seeking whom he may devour. That he's, he's always lurking. He's always on the prowl. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's... That's something else, to realize that Satan is always on the prowl looking to see how he may deceive and how he may distract and how he may destroy you. Well, let's talk about some of the schemes of the enemy because today we're going to see some of the schemes of the enemy as we read through chapter 6 here in Nehemiah. And I don't want you to miss some of these things, and I'm going to ask you up front, I wonder today, what is it that the Lord wants you to see? Because it wouldn't surprise me if some of you here might be able to identify with not some of these schemes. Maybe, maybe you might just be able to see that some of you, some of you may not have been working on a wall, but you may have been working on something else. And for whatever the reason, because of the, the schemes of the devil, you've gotten down and you've gotten distracted. You've gotten discouraged. I want you to hear this, that our God is a restorer. Some of you have quit. You're on the sidelines of ministry. Whatever the reason, I want you to hear this, that our God is a restorer. But let's talk about some of the schemes today. Look at chapter 6 and let's, let's read together. But as we read together, I want you to write, number one, I want you to write this scheme down. Let's just write the word temptation down. The word temptation probably one of the first schemes that we see here. Now let me read for you in chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. Sembalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So Sembalat, verse 2, and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Now I got tickled at the kids when I was bringing them bringing them to church because I got to, we were talking about the story and, and they go, well, who in the world wants to go to the plane of, oh, no. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So here it is. The wall is in place except for the doors. And even though the wall has been completed, Jerusalem wasn't secure and there was still danger. And here it is that some of Nehemiah's enemies, Sambalat and, and Geshem, sent word to Nehemiah. They wanted to meet him out on the plain, some 20 miles away from where he was working on the wall. Now, I want you to think about that. I mean, this isn't just a hop, skip, and jump. I mean, this joker's going to have to get on the camel, and he's going to have to ride for a pretty quiet, 
quite some time, or it's going to take a pretty long walk. What do you think the intent of those guys were to lure him away from the wall? Do you think they just wanted to stop and have a, have a cup of java somewhere along the way? I don't think so. I don't really think it was about having a cup of coffee. No good. And look at what he goes on to say. But I realized that they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work and I can't come down. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Nehemiah's excuse was, man, listen, I'm busy. I'm busy. Why should I stop doing what I'm doing, a great work, and come down to meet with you? Now let me ask you a question just for a second. Based on Nehemiah's response, do you think do you at all think that Nehemiah might have been expecting their attack? I mean, do you think that Nehemiah, as he had been working on the wall, understanding that the enemy was angry, that they were bitter and they were nasty and they wanted to attack him, do you think that maybe Nehemiah had spent any time at all thinking about the possible attacks of the enemy and how they might go about to distract him or to destroy him? It wouldn't surprise me if Nehemiah had, had sat down, and maybe you've done this. Have you ever played in your mind different scenarios? Sit down and just sort of, I mean, even driving along. You'll be driving along and you're like going, okay, that person's going to pull out in front of me. And you start playing through your mind different scenarios and how you're going to avoid this. Maybe you, am I just, am I alone in that? I think, man, I think Nehemiah knew that the enemy was out there. And I think that he was very cognizant to what was taking place. And I think Nehemiah had played around in his mind some of the scenarios and tactics that the enemy might use to distract him. And let me say this right here. Man, this is a good point. Man, we can finish the sermon right here today. Let me say this. So we got Nehemiah in the wall. And the wall was the focus of the enemy. Because it was significant to the life of the Jewish people and their faith in the restoration of, Jude, of Jerusalem. But I want you to fast forward just for a second, 2,500 years. And let me ask you this question. Let me ask you the question, who and what seems to be the focus of the enemy's attack today? See, they wanted to be able to stop Nehemiah because the enemy knew what it would mean to have the wall to be reconstructed. But let me ask you today, what is it today that seems to be the focus of the attack of the enemy and why? You don't answer me. Just sit and think about it for a second. What do you think that the focus of the enemy's attack is on today? What is it that might represent the wall today that Satan himself, the enemy, is trying to destroy and tear down? And how do you think he's going about it? I want you to sit on that for a second. That's a Jesus moment, people. That's something we need to sit down and recognize because it's not about rebuilding the wall right now. But I'll tell you what, Satan is doing everything he can to try to destroy. And he's doing everything he can to try to tempt us because he's a schemer and he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he's a thief seeking to kill, steal, and destroy the enemy's attacks aren't always quick they're not always brief but sometimes they're 
Sometimes they're slow and consistent over time. Sometimes it's, we see, and you'll, you'll see it in just a second in Scripture 4, sometimes they're, they're just, they're consistent. A little bit, a little bit, and a little bit. What is that old song that uh, one of the, is it Casting Crowns that sings the, slong, the song Slow Fade? Before you realize it, it's like the frog in the kettle. Just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and you don't recognize it until all of a sudden. This is what the scripture says in reference to temptation of the enemy, that they always appeal to the flesh. It appeals to pride, pleasure, position, and power. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says this, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything that we see and pride in our achievements and our possessions. They're not from the Father, but from, they're from this world. And guess who the prince of the world is, people? Satan himself. That's what the scripture has to say in John chapter 12, verse 31, that the prince of the world is Satan. And he knows how to lure us, he knows how to draw us away from what is most important, to that what seems important. Now, I don't know about you, but temptation may not seem like it's a big deal. But how many of us in this room have the battle scars as a result of temptation? Jim Frazier will stand up and talk to you about some battle scars and some wounds as a result of temptation as a young man. And many of you have them. It's a scheme of the devil because he wants to destroy you. And the plans of the enemy are still working today. And I know that because he never sleeps. He never rests. But he's always active. So temptation. So you see the enemy is he's scheming through temptation, trying to draw, trying to lure Nehemiah away to come down and to come in the plane of what? Oh, no to a place that he shouldn't be, to take him away from what he's, God has led him to do. I want you to write down the word slander. Parents, I'm going to let you explain that to your children. I'll give you a definition in just a second. But write, uh, instead, of, you can write down that word slander, but read these verses with me starting at verse 4. Four times they sent the same message. Four times. So remember, it wasn't just a one-time quick boom and it's over with. Four times they sent the same message. And each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sambalat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. And this is what it said. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations. And Geshem tells me it's true that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. And that's why you're building the wall. According to this report, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim, to proclaim about you. Look, there is the king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. And I replied, listen, there's no truth in any part of your story. You're making it all up. They were just trying to intimidate us. Imagine that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. 
When I say the word slander, what I'm, what I'm meaning is false accusations or lies, false statements. And what they were doing is they were trying to use that slander. They were trying to make those, those false accusations and false statements to intimidate. Um, and Nehemiah wouldn't do what they wanted. So here it is. They write a letter. They write a letter and they, they send it. They send it to Nehemiah, and it's filled with a bunch of lies. Now, now an official, an official letter, a typical, a typical official letter. And you guys, get your letters out just for a second. I hope it's still sealed. There might be something really special in there. A typical official letter would always have been sealed, and it would have been sealed, and it would have been for an important person, and so. They would take that letter and they would seal it up and they would stamp it and they would make sure that it would have been, it would have been for somebody that was an important person. So one important person would send it to another important person. They would roll it up and they would tie it up and they would stamp it to make sure that it was secure. But here the letter they sent to Nehemiah wasn't secure, but it was open. Why in the world do you think that they would send him an open letter that would have nothing but a bunch of lies in it? Do you think that maybe they wanted other people to read that letter beside just Nehemiah? Do you maybe think that they were trying to use that also as a way of discrediting Nehemiah and his position and who he was as a leader, as a governor? They were trying to basically say, Nehemiah, you're really not that important. As a matter of fact, we're trying to spread these lies about you. It wasn't an official document. But listen, children, I want you guys to open up your document. Because Nehemiah was important. And not only is Nehemiah important, you guys are important. And Ms. Sharon wanted you to know that you were important. As a matter of fact, somebody tell me what it says inside of your letter. It says what? Yes. Get out of here. It says you're special? Just for that, your mom's taking you to McDonald's. Of all the people in the world, Cherie had to do that, right? <laughs> Oh, you're special. But they, but they didn't think Nehemiah was special at all. Not at all. They wanted to do everything they could to try to discredit him, to try to tear him down. They did not want the rebuilding of the wall. But they said, listen, the only thing you're trying to do is declare yourself king of the Jews, and you're rebelling against the king of Persia. By the way, the one who sent you here. They were just trying to stir the stink. That's all they were trying to do. Um, and let me, you know, I guess this is something, this is a point for us to always make. Listen, if you're in leadership, if you're in a place of authority, if you're in a place of leadership, let me say this. There are always going to be those moments when slander takes place. There are always going to be those moments when those accusations, those, those uh, comments come that are false. And you've got, to, you've got to figure out how you're going to, you're going to deal with it. Anybody that is a leader in a, in a setting, you're going to have to endure slander because it comes with the territory. I mean, and what do you do? Do you run and hide? Do you run and hide? What did Nehemiah do? Mm. Now he says, listen, man, there's no truth to the story that you're, that you're telling. I mean, he didn't call everybody together and say, listen, I want to tell everybody what he's saying is wrong. Did you run off to go tell the king of Persia? Listen, what he's saying. No, he said, listen, man, you know that's a lie. It's not right. It's not true. Stop it. That's what he said. 
I love it what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. It says, live in such a way that even though you are accused of wrongdoing, others will see your honorable behavior. Nehemiah didn't make a big deal about it. He just kept focused and moving ahead. He didn't make a public address. He didn't try to defend his position. He didn't get bent out of shape. He just kept moving ahead and said, you know what you're saying isn't true. D.L. Moody said this, if you'll take care of your character, your reputation will take care of itself. If you'll take care of the things that nobody else sees, you know, the things that are done behind the scenes, if you'll do the right thing behind the scenes, the things that nobody else sees, your reputation will take care of itself. It may take some time, but it'll take care of itself. You know who the best advocate in the world is? Jesus. That's one of the words that's used to describe Jesus, is advocate. And Bill, he's a great advocate. I want him on my side. And he speaks with authority. Many years ago, um, I had a kid in student ministry. and Many, many years ago, this has been more than 20 years ago, great kid, moved up the ladder in leadership very fast. I mean, in probably 16 or 17 years old, and Rob being in fast food environments, you probably, it's probably amazing. He was a fast food manager at a restaurant at, at that young age. It was just unheard of. But after being in leadership for a couple of years, um, I got a phone call, and he had been accused. He had made a deposit at a night box, at a night, a night uh, deposit that went missing. And they accused this um, group, had accused him of stealing the night deposit box. Chief of police called me from the community and said, Sid, he said, he said you know this kid very well. He said, um, do you think he did it? And I said, no. He said, well, how do you know that? And I said, I, I know his character. He said, are you sure? And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure. He said, that's all I want to know. It wasn't until like six months, six months, eight months later, they ended up finding out that it was somebody inside the bank that had stole it. But this young man, I knew his character. I knew his character because I knew him. You know, an, an encouragement for us as believers is to, to live this way, to live in such a way that even if you're accused of doing wrong, that those around us would say, man, no, you don't know him. That's not who he is. But even if it happens and when it happens, and don't be caught off guard because the enemy knows and he knows how to sow seeds and he knows how to discourage and he knows how to sow seeds of doubt, discouragement, because he wants to destroy you. And there may be some of you here today that some false information or accusations have been shared about you, and you've been toting that around, and man, you don't know how to deal with it. It's a struggle, which leads me to the second or the third scheme of Satan, is fear. You might want to write that down. Look at what happens here, and I want you to focus on verse 9, 13, 14, and verse 19. And just look at, see what it in references in fear. And children, if, we're your, if you're with your parents, you can underline or circle the number of times the word intimidate or fear shows up. But look at what it says in verse 9. They were just trying to intimidate, there's that word intimidate, us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued to work with even greater determination. Skip down to verse 13. They were hoping the enemy 
was hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, O oh my God, all the evil things that Tobiah and Sembalot have done, and remember Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who have tried to, here's that word, intimidate me. Then skip down to verse 19. They kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds, and they told him everything I said, and Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate me. Do you guys like bullies? Never have liked a bully. What bullies like to do is bullies like to, to encourage fear. They want to threaten. They want to frighten. And they want to intimidate. They want to make us afraid. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's some of you guys here that have experienced fear in your heart. And that fear has kept you on the sidelines for whatever the reason. Some of you guys that are in, have been at school and you've been at school and you're afraid to go to school or you maybe have been afraid to go to a specific class because of somebody that's tried to intimidate you or make you afraid. It's been hard and you've been scared and you've cried to your mom and dad or maybe it's been a teenager and, and you've been afraid or fearful because somebody has bullied you or made fun of you because of a certain situation. Fear is real. The fear of failure keeps us on the sidelines. The fear of what it might cost in time or energy or what it sacrifices might be incurred. What others might say. Have you ever been in a place in life where fear has been so real that it's paralyzed you? Have you ever had something happen in life that the fear was so real that it paralyzed you and you didn't feel like you could even make a move because you were so afraid? Have you ever had that happen? I mean, I can think of multitudes of instances. One of the most real instances was when I was a child. Um, I was playing outside, uh, was out where the cows were, and I had gotten in between a, uh, an old cow and her, and her calf, and she was one of the old Florida cows, and she had a big old set of horns. And, man, she didn't like the fact that I had gotten in between her and her calf. And my dad was close enough, but she started at me. And she's coming at me. I didn't know what to do. And it wasn't like, I mean, I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I could have got out of the way. I, I could have at least run or did something. But I was so afraid, I, I just stood there. But luckily, my dad was close enough that he, he knocked me out of he knocked me out of the way and and stopped her you know she was afraid of him but you know we do that in life a lot don't we we get so afraid that we we get we get afraid to make decisions because you're fearful i i think um i think from a, a real perspective i even the the planning of heritage in the early days i really came to realize what how paralyzing fear was because the enemy had such a hold. I was afraid to make any decisions because I was, and when I, when I got down to it, I come to realize that the real, the real root of it all was pride. I mean, if I, when I traced all of the decisions back, Richie, what I ended up realizing that the root of a lot of where I was at, the, the, the fears that I was facing, you know, Colt was what people might think, what they may say, 
What happens if I don't get a salary? What happens if I lose my house? What happens if nobody shows up? What happens? And all these little things that started popping up. And when I started, when I started, you know, just sort of whittling them down, pride was at the bottom of that. Where was that coming from? Was that coming from the Lord or was that coming from the enemy? That's a participation question. Yeah. It was coming from the enemy. I got so caught up in the what ifs and wondering about the what ifs that I lost sight of the what fors. Does that make sense? I got so caught up in the what ifs and wondering about the what ifs that I lost sight of the, the what fors. And, and I, I mean, it was hard because I had never been through that in my life. I had always been really confident. But God was teaching me an awful lot about dependence on Him during that time. I'd never been at that place. And I'm going to tell you what, man, it's not a one-time, it's an ongoing battle. Because Satan knows exactly how to destroy us. And just because you've gone through it one time doesn't mean you're not going to go through it again. It doesn't mean that he's not going to attack you again. It doesn't mean that he's not going to put you through a time that you're, you're going to deal with the issue of fear again. But it was during that time, I remember sitting at the desk, and I just was, it was piling on top of me, and I was just so, I was so it, was a, it was an oppression. And I remember sitting, sitting, and I remember, um, and I had been reading the Word, and, and I, remember, I remember reading the Word, and, and it came to me, I go, that doggone joker's a liar. This whole bunch of mess is a lie. Satan is a liar. I have been believing the lie the whole time. I am so beside myself, and I'm so caught up in this, and I am so tense, and I am so fearful, because I am believing the lie that Satan himself, the father of lies, is telling me. And so I learned, I learned two words, and I've taught you these two words, and I'll share them with you again, because I share them all the time. The two words that, that sort of brought some relief to me, that sort of gave me a, a window of, of hope, the two words that I realized that, man, this, this puts it all in perspective. Those two words were, so what? So what? So what if Steve Rivers didn't like me? So what if nobody showed up? So what if this over here didn't happen? Or so what if that over there didn't happen? You know what? I know who God is. And I know that God loves me. And I know that what God's called me to do. And he goes to prove this point. That you know what the antidote or the remedy for fear is? This is what the scripture says in 1 John 4.18. Perfect love cast out fear we resolve our fears when we focus on his immeasurable love for us larry all that other kind of stuff i'm able to put it to the side when i'm able to go so what so what when i look at things in reference to god's love for me so what so what if i lose my house so what if nobody shows up so what god i know and that perfect love drives out all fear right down there is the fourth scheme of the of the devil the enemy fourth 
the fourth scheme, false prophets and false messages. There in verse 10, later I went to visit Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, and the grandson of uh, Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you. Now here's, this is very interesting. Because here's the son of a prophet, recognized as a prophet in this case, all right? But he's a secret informant. He's been hired by the enemy to speak to Nehemiah, but to not tell him the truth, but to tell him a lie, to try to trick him. And he's, he, what he does is he tells Nehemiah, listen, you come on into the temple, and when you do that, you'll be safe, because when they come to attack you, You'll be okay because if you come in the middle of, when they come into the middle of the night, you'll be all right because you'll be in the temple and where the doors will be locked and you'll be safe. I mean, it sounds really good because here's Nehemiah. He's a leader, he's a governor, but he's not a priest. And Nehemiah knew the word and he knew that he was not supposed to be in the temple. Might have been good advice, but he knew that if he were to follow his advice, not only would he be sinning, but he would also be saying, I'm not trusting in the power and the might of an almighty God. And you know what happens when we don't trust God and his greatness? We try, to tra- we try to take control. We may say with our mouth that God is in control, but we demonstrate our belief that God is in control with how we respond. But Nehemiah said, I don't think so. But he recognized that Shemaiah was a false prophet with a false message. And he knew that because he knew that the message that the false prophet shared was against the word of God. Um, Verse 11, but I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I will not do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sembalat had hired him. Now, Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 3. Listen at this. For a time is coming where people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, but they will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Can I tell you guys that there are lots of false prophets and false messengers out there today? Can I say that one more time? There are lots of false prophets and false messengers that are sitting on platforms like this all around the world today. And do you know how you're able to know a false prophet? Is because they speak against what the, what the word has to say. This is the word, the word of God. Nehemiah knew the Shemaiah was the false prophet because he knew what the word said. He was leading the people towards sin and rebellion instead of towards humility and repentance. He was giving a false sense of security. He was telling people what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. And here was here was the false prophet speaking to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah knew it wasn't right because he knew what was written. I don't know how much time you spend in the Word, 
But you got to spend time in the Word. Facebook cannot be your source of information. A conversation around a table at, at the restaurant cannot be your source of information. God's Word has to be your source of information. It is the source of truth. It is God's Word that gives us direction. And you know what happens when people are in trouble? People are going to turn to people to look for answers. Man, people look to fortune cookies for answers. People look to horoscopes for answers. People will turn to a self-help book for answers. When God has given us His Word for answers, He's given us His Word. And as believers, as many of you are here, I would, I would hope, this is our source of truth, encouragement, and direction. We need that. And it's God's word that helps us to identify where the false prophets are. And I want just to say this. Man, the distractions were real in Nehemiah's time, but the distractions and the schemes of Satan are very real in us today. They're no different. They're very, very real. So how do we overcome the opposition? I mean, how do we overcome the temptation and the pride, the power, the pleasure, the position is Satan tries to lure us away. How do we overcome the slander and the fear and the, and the false prophets and the messages? I mean, what, what is it that we do? Look at what he said here in verse 9. Go back to verse 9 just for a second. When he said they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination I love what the NIV says for this passage. It says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. <laughs> but Nehemiah prayed, now strengthen my hands. The first thing that I think we can learn from Nehemiah on how to overcome and how to deal with the distractions, the schemes of the enemy is this. Stay the course. Stay the course. One of the first things that Nehemiah did is he prayed. He said, Lord, strengthen my hands. I want to stay the course. In Isaiah chapter 35, 3 and 4, it says, strengthen those who had tired hands. Has anybody ever had tired hands before? Some of you got tired hands today. You're tired. You're struggling. And one of the reasons that you might be struggling today is because one of the tools of the devil himself is to isolate you. And nobody in the world knows that you're struggling except yourself. It might be something that you're struggling in relationship to your marriage or, or at home. It may be in ministry. I don't know what it may be. But you're struggling. I love, I love what, what uh, the old saying is, work like everything depends on you, pray like everything depends on God. But man, in those times when you're ready to give up and quit, we need to recognize the temptation of the enemy and, and be able to, to muster up and say, no, that's where I was at when I was sitting at the desk that day. You know, Dorothy had said, write the words of God, the promises of God, write them on three-by-five cards and put them on the floor. And she said, literally stand on the word. Literally stand on the word of God. She said, listen, just reading it isn't good enough. You've got to get up and stand on it and stand on it and pray. These are the promises of God. And stand on those promises to say, God, even though I don't understand it, I'm standing on your promises. 
and I'm not going to quit, and I'm not going to give up. But like I said, one of the tools of Satan is isolation, and so many times because of pride, it slips in. We don't want anybody else to know what we're going through. Let me tell you what, you will be destroyed. you got to have a, a brother, you got to have a sister that's walking through that time of difficulty with you to help you stay the course. Cole, one of the things, you got to have a somebody walking along, walking alongside of you. you got to have that. You need that. Acknowledge the need and say to the Lord, Lord, I need you. That's one of the greatest things about walking through a time of difficulty and stresses and walking through those times of discouragement is recognizing how much we need God. God, I need you. But the encouragement would be to stay the course. So I continued to work with even greater determination. The second thing, be courageous. The enemy wants to frighten us, but God wants to give us courage. The opposite of fear is courage. Nehemiah refused to run. It takes courage to do the right thing. If you guys are going to see the movie Max, it's a good movie. I don't always recommend movies. It makes you cry. It's a good movie when you cry, right? It's about a dog and a guy and his dog and the father says, talks about heroes, and he said, a hero always tells the truth. It takes courage to tell the truth sometimes, right? Courage. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but power and love and self-discipline in Joshua. Here it is, Joshua's getting ready. Moses is gone, and the people of Israel are on the, on the verge of walking into the to the promised land that God had given them and promised them. Promised it to Abraham and Isaac and their descendants, and now it's time for them to, to cross over. And several times in the, in the book of Joshua, God, he tells, he tells him, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why do you... What do, you think he told, what do you think he told him to be strong and courageous? Because it was just going to be a, a walk in the park? He's only, man, be strong and courageous because it's just going to be something that's easy. Be strong and courageous. No, because you're going to face temptations and you're going to face battles and you're going to face slander and you're going to, you're going to face fear and you're going to face these issues. Be strong and courageous. And I love, I love it what it says, because it says, because I will be with you. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Listen, just as I, I guided them across and I parted the sea, and just as I took care of the plagues, and just as I provided a, a cloud by day and a fire by night, and just as I provided manna, and just as I, just as I, I will be with you. I will be with you. Man, has it ever dawned on you in the midst of life that God is with you? I mean, do you ever stop and think, God is with me? Why do I have to be afraid? That just as all these things that God has done, that God, surely God is with me, that just as God provided this, that God is, man, God is with me. You've probably never even said that, have you? Okay, that God is with me. Man, in the midst of this struggle that I'm going through, God is with me. Don, that God is, God is with me. And John, that God is with me. God is with me. Say that with me. God is with me. 
Say it again. God is with me. God is with me. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget the fact that God is, is with you and He's with me. We celebrate Christmas and, you know, and there's toys and there's Santa Claus and there's Christmas trees and there's lights and there's, and there's presents. But the real reason of Christmas is Emmanuel. God is with me. Jesus in the flesh. God in the flesh. He's here. He's with me. And I don't have to be afraid, but I can take courage. Another way to overcome the distractions or the schemes of the enemy is to finish the job. Look at what he says in verse 15. So on October the 2nd, the wall was finished. 52 days after we had begun. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized the work that had been done, that this work had been done with the help of our God. During those 52 days, many letters went back and forth between Tobiah and the nobles of Judah. For many in Judah had sworn allegiance to him because of his father-in-law, which Shekinah, the son of Era, and the son of Jehoiim, who married his daughter, Meshulam, son of Erakah. And they kept telling me about Tobiah's good deeds, and then they told him everything that I had said, and Tobiah kept sending threatening letters to intimidate me. James 2, James 2, 19 says this, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is a God. Good for you, for even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. Let me tell you what, when God shows up, the demons tremble. The, dem the demons tremble. See, they know when, when, when God's in the room. When God's in the house, the demons tremble. They know when God's up to something. And they didn't want the wall to be rebuilt because they knew that God was up to something. See, some of us have no reason to worry because is God up to something? Maybe some of you are up under attack because God is up to something. Maybe God's wanting to use you to accomplish something. And you're up under attack because the enemy knows it. He knows it. And he's going to do everything he can to try to scheme to destroy you. And the demons in hell are trembling right now because they are afraid. The attack of the enemy is real. Satan himself is real. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's the father of lies. He seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. But I want to finish out the last part of that verse. Because Jesus, who said that the, that the thief wants to seek, to kill, steal, and destroy, said that I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Wow. Nehemiah, I'm doing a good work. And I can't come down. I'm doing a good work. And I can't come down. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing for the Lord right now that you can't be distracted? What is it right now that you're doing for God that you cannot be distracted?
Are we on the same wavelength? Or have you been distracted? Nehemiah said, man, I ain't got time to go to the plane of, oh, no. Because I'm busy. And I'm doing great work. What are you doing for the Lord right now that will not just count for now, but will count for eternity? What are you involved in now that will send a ripple effect into the next generation? How are you using what God has given you to equip and encourage and encourage the body of believers? Or are you just taking up space on Sunday mornings? Uh-oh. Lessons from Nehemiah. Now, what have you heard today? Before we close, what have you heard? What has the Spirit spoken to you? We've talked about some of the schemes. We've talked about some of the ways to overcome. What is it that you've heard what has the Holy Spirit spoken to you? Participation, back and forth. Yes, he is, Diane. God is with you. Somebody else. What? Stay the course. Yep. Don't be discouraged. Somebody asked me earlier, where do you stand in the prophecy and all this kind of stuff? Let me tell you what. God, I'm just not that smart, okay? I, I'll be honest with you. I'm just not that smart. But when I read the Word... There's a time of coming. Because they had to rebuild the wall because the people had become idolatrous. They had left God and walked away from him. And they had become rebellious. And they walked away from the word. As a result of that, God punished them. There was judgment. And that's what happens. You're going to see in a couple of weeks, you know what happened? They all stood at attention in the courtyard while Ezra read the word for six hours. And they were very attentive to hearing everything that he had to say. Because they wanted to apply everything that the word had to say. Because they understood, man, God means business. What else have you heard? Stand on the word. That's it. It's the word. I, listen, don't you ever, ever, you better test everything that I tell you because I will make a mistake. I'm a man, and I will make a mistake. I am not your, I'm not your authority. God's word is your authority. Somebody else said something back here. Fear? Don't be afraid. Don't let pride get in the way. If you will trace most of your fears back, or most of your issues, most of them are traced back to pride. Pride comes before a 
Pride is what keeps us from asking for. Pride is, I mean, it goes on and on. The what ifs kill us, especially those of us that are Labrador retrievers, if you know anything about personalities. I mean, the what ifs. And you get lost in the what ifs and you, and you lose sight of the what fours. And I, I had lost sight of the what fours. Yeah. Any other lessons? Man, listen, I just want you to hear God's word is full of stories. Not stories of yesterday, stories for today, and they're impactful. Read his word. So we read Nehemiah chapter 6. Guess what we're going to read next week? Nehemiah chapter 7. So guess what you can read with your, by yourself or with your family or with your next week? You can read Nehemiah chapter 7. Or you can go back and review chapter 6. Yes. Or you can go back and listen to chapter 1 and start working back through it. And I want to end by saying this. Jesus is what changes lives. Not church attendance, not good works, not anything else. Only Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to die on a cross for us. A payment of sin that we couldn't pay. It was through that offering that offers us freedom. If you don't know Jesus, I wish I could tell you it was simply saying a prayer, but it's a humbling of your spirit to say, I acknowledge my sinfulness, I recognize my sin, and even though I don't understand it all, I desire to know Jesus, to follow him, to to, um, to admit my sin, to trust in the fact that he died on the cross for my sin so that I might be set free. Today, if you've never made a decision to trust Jesus, I'd love to talk with you about that, about that decision. He is a restorer. Some of you have, have left, have fallen away, have gotten away, have never been involved for whatever reason because of something that's happened in the past. Listen, man, if it was because of our past, I wouldn't be standing here. I wouldn't be standing here. I am thankful that, man, when Jesus died for me and I received that forgiveness of my sins, he washed away my sins. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but only through Jesus, only through Jesus can I have eternal life. And if you don't know him today, man, come and sit, and I'd love to be able to talk with you. Um, can I pray with you today as we, as we close up our time together? Can I do that?